so we have been in this series in Nehemiah, and I keep reading through the chapter and working on each chapter, and it feels like we're tracking along with Nehemiah's life, his story. For me personally, I keep reading it and going, this is me, this is all, this is what we're planning, we're getting ready, we're trying to build, we're putting people together, we're, we're doing this new thing, and Nehemiah's doing this. And each week it's like, yes, this is what I needed to hear, I hope this is what you needed to hear. This is where I sense that we are as a church, as a very young baby church in that sense. And uh, so a couple weeks ago, we started, we looked at Nehemiah, and just, I don't know if there's someone here who's just sort of, who's kind of catching up, but we started the series, we looked at Nehemiah, he prays, he hears the need, he prays, he begins to seek the Lord, he, he begins to make plans as well, if I make move to, I tend to move, so if I move too far away from the mic, just raise your hand, I'll, I'll come back. Um, he, he begins to make plans, he, he begins to, to, to organize his resources, and then several weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at, he begins to get feet on the ground and take a look at what is, what, what's, the, what's going on, what, what are the needs, what's the shape of the city, where's the wall broken down at, where's it built up at, where are the trouble spots going to be. Two weeks, I said two weeks ago, two weeks ago we looked at trouble from without, external opposition. We have an adversary. When we start doing something from the Lord, we start taking action, we can expect that he's going to push that and push into the darkness thing makes sense. Because if we're not doing anything for the Lord, the devil's quite happy to leave us alone. And then last week, my dad spoke from Nehemiah chapter 3, which is a long list of the names of all the people who participated in the wall, in the building, and the need to work together. There's lots of work to do. There's good work to be done. There's good work to be done. And actually, we need all of us to be involved. We need different giftings. I love about our conversation after the service. And said, you know, it's interesting. You get different personalities, but the same giftings, and they end up looking different because of the different personality. We need that glorious diversity of the body of Christ. And so this week, we look, in a sense, it's, it's the building on of the last two weeks of opposition and building together. We look at conflict from within, trouble from within. And I felt like this was in parallel with our meeting together for the first time in person as well. Because I, I said to someone this week, it's kind of like when a couple gets married, they've lived apart, they, there's all this anticipation, and they get married and they move in together. And you find out when you're in person together that all of a sudden there's problems that arise, tension, conflicts. When Renzo and I first got married, uh, we moved in, we had this apartment, I got it rented and we moved in, and we were we had some money to spend to furnish the apartment, so we went around to Ikea and bought a load of stuff, and we had this great furniture cabinet to put all of our new cups and bowls and mugs and plates in. And, and we sat down, and we both reached for the hammer, and it was kind of like, what do you think you're doing? It's my job to put this together. And she was like, well, no, it's my job, but my family, my dad always put it together. My family, my mom always put stuff together. And that was the beginnings of our first proper blowout fight. As, uh, as, as simple as it may seem, we fought over who puts together the Ikea furniture. And as we begin to gather together, there is the opportunity for us, as we're actually spending time in the same room, it sounds strange to say, there's, there's going to be opportunities for conflict. And if we look at 
the Jews as they're, as they're building, they've got two things going on. They're beginning to build together, work together, which means you have to be vulnerable with your teammates. You're, because you're, you're, turning, you're turning, you're facing what's ahead, which means your back is your weak side is to those you're building with. So we're vulnerable as we build together. But we've also got external opposition, the people of God do, which raises up, which, which, which builds up pressure. And so that's us in the sense. So let's dive into this text. As Nehemiah gets familiar with the crisis that arises amongst God's people, and then he's going to do two things. He's going to take careful, decisive action to lead the wrongdoers to repentance and restoration. He's going to take that careful, decisive action to lead to renewed harmony, and then he's going to take great pains to set an example as a servant man. And so the crisis is presented to us in verse 1. And Nehemiah says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. If you want to know what an outcry looks like, sounds like, if you watch the England-Denmark game this last Friday, there was a somewhat disputed penalty that, took, that, that, that arose in England's favor. And if you watch the Denmark players flocking around the ref, you can see on their faces, their, their body like, God, that's not my God, you're kidding me. That's outcry. And so the outcry arises. You'll notice that it didn't just just arise from men, people, but from their wives also. Men, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm quite happy to sit in the midst of hard things and just, I'm just doing my thing, doing my Sometimes it takes my wife saying, hey, come on, this has to change. And that's what happened here. The people and their wives wrote their rows of great outcry. And some of that is because of what happened in chapter 4. Chapter 4 was, enemy from without is, is coming against them. He's trying to stop the work. And Nehemiah says, okay, we're going to adjust how we do things here. So men, all of your servants, everybody who's working on the wall, come and stay in the city. That means that all the guys who are coming from outside the city, their wives, and children, and families are still outside the city. Which means business isn't happening as usual. Families aren't being cared for. And so that is part of this outcry. And so there's three groups of people who begin to cry out, to raise an alarm. And, then, and there's three aspects of this conflict. First of all, it's nutritional. Really simple. It's nutritional. There's not enough to eat. With our sons and our daughters in verse 2, we are many. So let us get greater. We may keep alive. It's a nutritional problem. There's an increased population in the area. Because of the returning exiles. There's not enough grain. In verse 3, we find out that there's a famine on as well. It's nutritional. It's also financial. The people have lost control of their lands. You see, they have had to mortgage their properties in order to have enough money to buy grain. And in addition to the famine, which raises prices, they've also got to pay the exorbitant taxes of the king of Persia. The king of Persia was quite happy. Good morning. Welcome. (laughs) Um, The king of Persia was quite happy to let people do their own religious thing while taxing them really high taxes. So it was nutritional, it was financial, it was also ethical. If you notice in verse 5 and 6, the third king people says, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. We're equals, are we? We're the same people. And yet, 
we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it for other men have control of our vineyards. And so it's an ethical problem. It's an ethical conflict as well. Parents are selling their children as hired help, which was a common solution in that sense. It's something they offered that when you have a debt you can't pay, you don't have the, 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 good, the, the, the ability to pay it back, you would sell yourself out as hired help until the debt was paid. The problem is that the interest was so high, and they had so very little because of mortgaging their properties, they could never repay those things, and so their children were effectively Slaves. It reminds me of the quote in Animal Farm, or well. You know, at the beginning, the pigs say, all animals are equal. By the end, they said, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. That's what the Jews, this group of Jews is saying. We're all Jewish, but apparently some of us are more Jewish than others. Some of us are more equal than others. And so, friends, there is trouble from within for God's people here. An internal conflict has the potential to hamstring God's people. It has the potential to hamstring God's people. I played football uh, on Thursday nights uh, with Joe. If anyone wants to join me, Martin. Am I allowed to say that, Joe? Yeah. And my dad came along. And a couple weeks ago, he pulled his hamstring. And he couldn't move. He stayed on the pitch. He's going to have, I'll be able to pass it to him, but he had to pass it right to him because he couldn't, he couldn't move. He had no sideways movement at all. He was hamstrung. And that's the people of God. When internal conflict gets hold of us, we're hamstrung. We can't move. We're living around the pitch of life, as it were. And the devil stopped us. There's trouble from within. And friends, when we're building together and there's external opposition, the chances of internal conflict arise, and the devil loves to sidetrack us. The devil loves to sidetrack us. And so this is where I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, just briefly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Because sometimes when we think about internal conflict, we want to say, okay, we need to get unity. We need to build this unity. We need to be together and all, all, all one. And here's what Paul says about that. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We bear with, we put up with one another in a loving way. Bearing with one another in love. And here's what he says in verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. This is the key one. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit at bond. Make every effort, he says, to maintain it. Sometimes we say, we need to get it. We need to find unity. No, no, no. We already have unity. We don't need to get it. We have it. Because all of those who are in Christ Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus, have the Spirit, His Spirit, in us. And that makes us what? One. Brothers and sisters. Family. We have unity. The challenge is preserving making every effort to do that. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit into the church. Here we go. We're church right now. Can I say, someone say amen for me. We're, we're church right now. Isn't that good? We're church right now. So my question this morning is a little bit of an introspective. My first question, I like questions. 
because they make me think. My first question is this. What are the things that have the potential to divide us as a new baby church? And I want to ask that not in the sense of what's out here, but perhaps there's something in, in, there's something in you. It's a hobby horse where it's, it's, a, it's another loyalty. The, the, the devil could potentially use that in you. Paul says, examine yourselves. One of the things that has the potential to divide us is mass in the future. We're, we're, we're figuring things out. We're figuring out how we're going to do things. But mass, mass or no mass, as the churches, as things open up, the churches have the ability to do a little more freedom. And that has the potential to divide us. Perhaps there are things in your life, perhaps the devil has what Paul calls a foothold, something that is really... We have to sing this kind of music. We have to be these things. And friends, I want to say to you, we get to gather together, but we need to set those, some of those things aside and we need to prioritize one another over our personal preferences. Nehemiah begins to take, in the face of this conflict, careful, decisive to lead the wrongdoers, the nobles and officials in this case, to repentance and restoration. The goal is not just to see justice done, but to see the people one again. To see them one again. And so he takes action in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I was very angry. Friends, it's right. When there is injustice, when there are people within the body of Christ, inside a local church, who are taking advantage of one another. I don't care what level it is, whether it's physical or emotional, spiritual, relational, financial, whatever it is, it's right to be angry. They might anger. The people of God are hurting one another. He's angry. But you'll notice his second action in verse 7. I was very angry, and I took counsel with myself. Paul rightly says in Ephesians, be angry and don't sin, because anger often leads us to sin, to wrong responses. Nehemiah is angry, and he takes counsel with himself. Friends, we live in a world of hot takes, a culture of outrage. We're always... Everyone's angry about something. We have to announce our opinions about everything. Nehemiah is angry. He steps back because conflict not only has the ability to hamstring the people of God, it also has the potential, the glorious potential to make us stronger. I love the phrase, whatever it is, it kills you. We say that sometimes flippantly sometimes. But there is a sense in which conflict has the potential to work through it together, and there's restoration and repentance has the potential to make us stronger. So Nehemiah steps back. And then he brings charges privately against the nobles and officials. And friends, we want to be careful about bringing charges. Nehemiah doesn't do it flippantly. That's why it's so, it's so key that in between the angry bringing charges, it takes counsel. I erroneously accused one of my children of wrongdoing yesterday. And I immediately realized I was wrong because my wife was sitting there going, Nope, you're wrong. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. And I had to go back to my, my, my child and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have accused you. I accused you too quickly. 
We need to be careful. Nehemiah is careful about bringing charges, but he does bring them carefully, decisively. And he says to them, you are exacting interest against your brothers. You are exacting interest. Interest could be as much as 50% in those days. I mean, it was critical. Nehemiah says, you are exacting interest. And in fact, exacting interest from a fellow Jew. This is something God had expressly forbidden in Exodus 22 and Leviticus 25. He says, you're allowed to charge interest against the foreigner, but not against your brother. And so, Nehemiah holds the fire. And then he holds a public assembly. He comes to them privately. They know where he's at. He gives them a heads up. We're going to see the gentleness of Nehemiah in this as well. He comes to them privately. gives them a heads up. And then he holds a public assembly. He says, listen, in front of all the people, we're trying to buy back our fellow Jews. Trying to rebuild Jerusalem. We're going about God's business. And you, meanwhile, are only interested in the bottom line. You make no profit. In your personal and they were, in verse 8, silent. They had not a word to say. Because, friends, there's never an excuse for taking advantage of a brother or sister in Christ. There's never an excuse for taking advantage on whatever level of people of God who are around you. This is our family. They had nothing to say. They were silent. And so, in for, in before that silence, Nehemiah begins to lead them through this, this process of repentance and restoration. And he begins with this principle in verse 9. He says, so I said, what you are doing, the thing that you are doing is not good. And here's the principle. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God in order to prevent the taunts of the nations who are our enemies? not to work in, in, walk in the fear of God. That's the principle. The principle is this. If you honor God through obedience, through trusting Him, He will take care of you. If you honor Him, you will never be put to shame. That's the principle that Nehemiah is leaning on. And the truth is same for us. When we honor God, when we do things His way, rather than cutting corners, rather than manipulating or controlling people, He will take care of us. It might not look like what you think. I probably won't be a new member of the front But he will care for you. And at the end of the day, in Jesus, he has cared for you in an ultimate way. Because he has your soul. You're safe in your hands. No one can touch you. That's what David says in the Psalms. Why should I fear flesh? Because God has a great that's the principle. And so he leads them through this, 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 this process of turning away. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from, let's abandon this exacting of interest. And he loves himself again with the kindness of Nehemiah. He loves himself and says, listen, I, my brothers, we've been lending them great as well. He tells us later he wasn't charging interest. He wasn't doing even the things that were allowed. But he loves himself again and says, listen, we need to stop doing this. This is about let's turn away from it. And then he says, in fact, not only turn away from it, but we're going to do a new thing. We're going to give back everything, including the interest. We'll return it all. Because there's a time for lending. Lending is not bad. But sometimes, and I mean it in the sense the true lend, where you lend, you don't charge interest. There's a time for lending to your brothers. And there's a time for giving as well. And that's what Nehemiah says. Now is the time. We're in crisis. Now is the time for giving away, for generosity. 
You see Nehemiah's kindness the way you through here? He's, he's, he's being gentle with them, even as he confronts them. And lastly, he says this. He does this. He calls the priests. And he says, he, he makes the nobles and officials swear to the priests because it's sacred. And he, he utters a curse. He says, may God shake out every man from his house from his labor who does not keep this promise. It's a sacred moment. And friends, money, power, the need to be right, those are powerful temptations. Nehemiah knows that. He says, listen, we're going to put some accountability in place as well. Paul says it like this in Romans in chapter 16. If you think Nehemiah was being a bit harsh by making them swear, not having a curse, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 16 and verses uh, 18, 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Watch out. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive parts of the night. They do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. Friends, we don't want to be a people who serve our own appetites. We don't want to be a people who serve our own appetites. We want to serve one another. So Nehemiah brings in accountability. And you'll notice how it ends in verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. We agree. And praise the Lord. We praise the Lord. It was not just justice. It was justice and restoration. And the people ended by worshiping together. And the people did as they had promised. The goal is restoration, renewed harmony. Friends, Paul compares us as a local church to the body of Christ. We are so. We are the body of Christ. And he takes that analogy further and says we are like a body, a human body. We need one another. Jesus is the head, but we've got hands and arms and legs and muscles and tendons, and everybody plays a part. And when one takes advantage of another, it's like the hand smacking the other hand. It's like the finger poking me up. I was eating this week, and I bit my tongue really hard. And it was like, come on, mouth. Come on, teeth. Come on. Why are you hurting the tongue? We're just trying to eat here. That's why it's like you have to take advantage of one another. It makes no sense because individuals are hurt, and actually Jesus says ultimately it's like you're doing it to him. When you hurt a brother and sister in Christ, that's what he says in Matthew 25. He says, Listen, he separates the sheep and the goats. That's what's going to happen at the end of the day when he comes back. He's going to separate the sheep, those who love him, and the goats, those who have rejected him. And he's going to look at the sheep and say, Come join me in paradise. Because you took care of me. And they're going to say, how did we take care of you? Care of me? He's going to say, listen, whatever you took care of, offered a drink to one of these other sheep, the least of these, who was in me, it was as though you did it to who? Me. He's the head. When the hand smacks the other hand, the head feeds. Sometimes I say to my children, I say to my son, if you beat up on your sister... You and I are not okay. And I say to my daughter, if you are not kind to your brother and, and, and you're hitting him, it's like you're doing it to me. We're not okay either. It's the same way in the body, the household of faith. 
if, if Rafi and I are not okay, Jill and I are not okay, actually there's something between me and God as well. That's why you get verses like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where, where Peter says to husbands and wives, Husbands, love your wives well so that your prayers won't be connected. We're connected. We're connected. We have that spirit. Friends, who do you need to go be reconciled with? It might not be you just trying to be together, but maybe there's another believer, another child of Christ, who you are at odds with, and you need to be reconciled with them. And I just know Nehemiah's role of reconciliation in this. He brings the people back together. He reconciles them. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what God did in Christ for us. We were enemies of God. We were far off from him. And Jesus came and he paid the price, the price that enabled us to come back before God, be in relationship with him. Because by the blood of Christ, we've been washed clean. We've been justified. We are now acceptable to God. We can come into his very presence. Jesus reconciled us, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and now we have received that ministry of reconciliation and so is there someone within the body of Christ with whom you've got an issue? And before you offer up your gift of praise to the Lord, you need to go and be reconciled to that person. And the second part of that question is, is there someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, who needs to be reconciled to him? And you have a part to play in that. Who's that person in your life as well? It's good to name names. You need to write it down in your journal, make a note in your phone, write it on the back of your hands, you don't want to see it. Who's, who are those people? Finally, I have no idea what time it is. I'm to look at the clock. Okay. Nehemiah, thirdly, takes pains to set an example of servant leadership in verses 14 through 19. Sometimes we talk about, here's what a leader looks like, and everyone kind of checks out because it's like, well, I'm not a leader. Maybe you're not a leader at work. Maybe you're not a, 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 a quote-unquote leader in any human context. But actually, the idea of a leader here is about the character. And it's about having the character of Christ. That implicates all of us. That implicates all of us. We are all to have the character of Christ. We are, we are called to be like him. And so here's what Nehemiah does. Firstly, he says, Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's food allowance in verses 14 and 15. He didn't claim the lawful rights that he could claim. He didn't claim those. Paul says something very similar in the New Testament. He says, listen, I'm not going to claim, you see, I, I raised my own financial support, so I don't have to put a burden on you, even though I could, rightfully so. I'm not going to eat these meats. I'm not going to do these things because I'm not, I'm not going to claim my rights for the good of the people of God. Nehemiah doesn't claim his lawful rights. He doesn't lord it over those people, as he says that former governors did. And you might remember Jesus in Mark chapter 10 saying to the disciples, the Gentiles lord it over one another, not so with you. No, you are to be servants to one another. He didn't do it. He didn't do it because of the fear of the Lord, he says in verse 14. I did not so. I didn't lord it over them because of the fear of the Lord. That language of fear is about what controls you. You, you could be controlled by 
good things or bad things. It's, it's, the, it's in the same sphere of stuff as like, we say, I trust these things. I worship God. I am driven for, I live for this thing. We say, I fear this. In, in the Old Testament sense of honor, or in our, our, our modern sense of being afraid of something, it's ultimately what controls you. So you can be controlled by fear or guilt or shame. You can be you can trust in money or your career. You can worship success. Or you can be controlled by the God of heaven through his spirit who indwells you. Nehemiah didn't do these things because he was trusting the Lord. What are you controlled by this morning? Are you controlled by the Holy Spirit? Or are you controlled by something else? Nehemiah is controlled by the Spirit. And thirdly, he's got skin in the game. I keep coming back to this phrase. Joe and Nikki, we laughed about it the other day because I didn't realize that it was more of an American phrase than an English phrase. Skin in the game. It costs him something. He says he perseveres in the work of the wall. He perseveres in his managerial and his organizational roles. I suspect that he got down and laid stones next to, next to somebody else as well. It costs him labor. It costs him a financial investment. You'll notice in verse 18 that he's providing a meal for a large group of people. And then he utters that prayer in verse 19. He says, remember, my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And what he's operating under here is the fear of the Lord. It's the principle of Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these other things will be taken care of. When you seek God's glory and you seek the well-being of God's people, he's going to take care of you. It's that same principle that Nehemiah, and he holds himself to the same Savior, that he talks to the nobles and officials about. Ought you not to fear God and avoid the mocking of our enemies? It's the same principle. And Nehemiah operates under that. He's got skin in the game. He trusts the Lord. And he doesn't claim his rights. And I want to end on that note of claiming rights. One of our core values at City Church is that we are a sacrificially loving family. It's the one that undergirds all of our other core values. Peter says in 1 Peter that love covers a multitude of sins. We want to be a sacrificially loving family. We want to love one another in a way that costs it costs me a mind to love the people of God. It costs us to love one another as family. You know this in a sense from your human families. And you go, yeah, it costs me a lot to love my family. Somebody got it? It's so easy. It ought to cost us something. We want to love one another sacrificially. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's talking about two different things, but he's in both cases, he says, listen, I, I, I will never eat meat again sacrificed to idols if it causes another brother to stumble. I'll never do it again. And so he says, I'll give up my life for the people of God. But then in the next chapter he says, I become all things to all people in order that some, one or two, might be drawn to Christ. Are you okay? We're family all together. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll become all things to all people in order that one or two might become drawn to God. And so he, he, he doesn't claim his rights for the good of the people of God, and he doesn't claim his rights in order to see others come to Christ. And, and that's where we're at. That's where we want to end this morning, is that we have rights 
lawful rights, enshrined in law, and we, because we know who we are in Christ, we can give those things up for the good of one another, for the good of our community, our neighbors, our city, our country. In order that some might 